As the events of January 6th show, the Civil War is back. Did it ever really end? Are we really one nation? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. One nation, indivisible. It's been in our Pledge of Allegiance since 1892. But is it true? Are we one nation? Are we really indivisible? The insurrection of January 6, 2021 saw Confederate flags in our capital. Among the clothing and swag were the words, Civil War. One side refuses to acknowledge the president-elect as legitimate. The divisions in America today have risen to the surface and are indeed searing. But are they really a new phenomenon, which hasn't existed since the war against secession in the 1860s? Is it just a comforting myth that we are one nation indivisible? I believe our guest today, author Richard Kreitner, might say yes, the different cultures and identities which did go to war have actually been with us since our founding, or even before that, actually. In fact, secession was seriously discussed by activists in the North well before the South latched on to the idea. 800,000 lives were lost along with an unknown number of limbs to force the southern states, to live under northern domination. Of course, the South was defeated militarily, but as with so many other wars, a military victory in no way actually put an end to the conflict. Actually, in recent years, more and more of my well-studied friends on the left have come around to thinking that maybe we should have let the South have its independence. After, the, uh, after all, the colonies seceded from Britain in 1776. Weren't the southern states trying to do likewise in 1861? Are we one nation indivisible? Or has it always been that we are many nations and that perhaps soon as we surpass 330 million people to maintain this treasured goal of self-government, perhaps we're just too big for one government? Richard Kreitner's timely book is called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you very much, Bert, and I, I thank you for doing the same. Richard Kreitner is a contributing writer to The Nation. His writings have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New York Review of Books, History News Network, and elsewhere. Well, Tell us, please, how this book came to be written. What did the election of Donald Trump have to do with it? Well, you know what, Bert? I started writing the book. I started working on it, at least researching the subject, about two years before um, Trump's election. So this was in the fall of 2014. I guess that was when the Democrats had just lost the Senate. Um, and there, that was kind of the first wave of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that were going on. I was working at The Nation at the time. I'm a contributing writer now. But at that time, I was um, a staff editor and I was the archivist of the magazine. And we were preparing for the 150th anniversary issue, which was in 2015. The magazine was founded by former abolitionists in 1865. And my job was to kind of dig through the, the magazine's archives and find interesting pieces and, and resurface them. But because of that, I, I was reading a lot about the Civil War and, and the moment in which the, the the journal was founded. 
um, says reading a lot about slavery and abolition and, and the union the, and the, the different possibilities that existed at the time, you know, had the North not invaded the South or, or tried to reconquer it and bring it back in the union, had the radical Republicans program of reconstruction actually been, you know, followed and, and fulfilled, what kind of country mm. would we have had? Um, and around the same time, I was just reading, I was starting to read a lot more about earlier periods in American history, especially the revolution and then the ratification of the Constitution. Um, and there's this one moment that, that kind of what I think of as the, the birth of the book uh, as an idea in my mind. I was in the New York Public Library and I was reading Charles Beard's famous An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, um, which came out in 1913, it was like a very radical you know, work of historiography that argued that the founders um, created the Constitution basically as a way to preserve their own, that is the wealthies, um, you know, power and property and privileges um, against a, a movement to kind of kick the American Revolution into into an, a new gear uh, in terms of economic distribution rather than simply political power. Um, mm. And I was I was starting to just draw connections between those two move those two episodes in American history the the Constitution and the Civil War and, and looking at this question of union and and I quickly realized that in the founding era the possibilities for the union were as wide open as they were in later periods that a lot of people thought that the union was going to break apart right after the revolution um, and you know what Beard was suggesting is that that perhaps that wouldn't have been such a good thing he doesn't really come out and say that but that seems to be the implication of the argument that that if that if union was the, the purpose was to concentrate power and, and money in, in a very few people's yeah. hands. I was, I became interested in, in the anti-federalist position, which argued for, you know, uh, decentralizing uh -huh. uh, power as a kind of populist measure. And then, so, so I was reading that and I, I left uh, the library and I was walking down sixth Avenue in Manhattan and I saw a sign um, at a black lives matter protest that said, the system isn't broken, it's fixed. And, and that, you know, obviously that sign was talking about right. the criminal justice system and, and police brutality and whatnot, but it also seemed to be talking about the Constitution and, and what Charles Beard was saying. Um, so then I just wanted to kind of dig into who else had had this thought uh, throughout American history that perhaps the union itself is the problem. Yeah, it could well be. And I've always sort of chafed at when I hear the American Revolution, but it, it really wasn't so much of a revolution. Yes, it was a war of independence. But it was uh, one side of the pond uh, wanted the loot, and they wanted their own uh, centralized power and wealth. So it wasn't so much of a real revolution, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And a number of years ago, I read with interest in Brenda Wineapple's book, Ecstatic Nation, words of abolitionist leader Wendell Phillips. He said, maybe the South would never again leave the Union or take up arms against it, but it would rule from within. That was certainly prescient. It has ruled from within. And as a left liberal northerner, I don't like it one bit. Reaction to that, please. I, I think that's a great quote. I guess he's, he's talking about after the Civil War. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's precisely the, the realization that I came to. I wish I had just read the quote. It would have made my job a lot easier. But when, when you study the, the, you know, the, the Reconstruction era, that's precisely what, what we find, you know, is that is that the South, um, it's not that secession went away because the South was convinced, you know, to, to give in on racial equality, for yeah. instance. Um, it was simply that they realized 
what their fathers had always known, which is that the union was the greatest possible guarantor of their ability to devise their own systems of racial apartheid and segregation and, and in some respects, slavery in everything but name. Um, so, you know, that, that was what they were fighting for during Reconstruction. And with the Compromise of 1877, yes. that's what they got. Is it was the, the permission that lasted for, you know, 80 years or something um, to, to maintain their own system of racial separation as the cost of maintaining the union. And, you know, for, yes. for a brief blip of this of the civil rights movement that was challenged once again as it had been during the civil war and reconstruction um but you know the the conservative legal movements for the last 30 or 40 years has been trying to walk back even those victories and get us back to to that kind of post-reconstruction um phase in, in in which uh you know white supremacy is is enshrined as one of the, the central pillars really of of the union and I think that's one thing that I've learned fairly recently about the Compromise of 1877, that very disputed election of 1876, is that uh, uh, black Americans were kind of thrown under the bus and that uh, white supremacy was, as you say, enshrined. And uh, it's it's uh, so interesting to, to look at. And, you know, people automatically, when they think of the Civil War, they think, oh, it was fought to free the slaves. Uh, my impression was that the institution, even on its own economics, was dying as it did everywhere else in the world. The only place where slavery was ended by a war was the United States. Uh, and after losing that war, the South, you know, and had tremendous devastation, the, the whites unleashed what's been called the typhoon of terror against African-Americans. So I just wanted to, to, to put that, you know, out there because... You know, some people say, "What? You know, you don't think we should have uh, fought the Civil War and let this the, and, and and beaten the South? You must be for slavery." No, not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not completely sure that I agree with that. First of all, I'm thinking of Haiti, where I think slavery was also ended through. I don't know what, if you want to call that a revolution, yeah, a revolution or, or what you want yeah. to call that, but certainly, certainly massive violence. Yes. Um, and there were a lot of people in the American, you know, political context, like John Quincy Adams, who I quote in the book a lot, um, who were predicting that that only a civil war would be able to end slavery someday. Um, and that, that was the position of the Northern abolitionists was that the union has to break apart one way or another in order for slavery to end. So we might as well do that sooner rather than later. They thought that Northern, that separating the North and the South would, um, take away from the South some of the, the guarantees uh, of slavery that Northern participation in the union gave it, you know, such as the fugitive slave clause. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm not sure. You know, we we really have no way of knowing. Yes, um, of course. I think there's some reason to to think that that while slavery was not um, kind of inevitably on the way out, had things continued as they were, had the North and South separated, um, that it, that would have you know, um, undermine the institution and, and, and undermine the price of slavery, which would have ultimately led to its collapse, um, which was the position of some people, you know, like William Lloyd Garrison and even Frederick Douglass to a certain extent during the secession crisis. Um, but you know, within two years, it becomes, it does become a war for emancipation, um, and, and gets rid of the institution, of course. Well, it got rid of the institution, but it did continue, uh, uh the anger and the, uh, as I said, the, uh, typhoon of terror, the, the clan and the, uh, you know, Absolutely, the racist attacks afterwards because people were so mad and it was so easy to see black people and just uh, take out your fury on them. And Absolutely. some in the legal community insist they are originalists like Scalia and others. They 
they say they know the original intent. Was one great union the original intent? Can that be said? Well, it, it can be said as much as anything else can be said in, in an originalist framework, which is really very little because they all disagreed with one another. You know, anybody who reads serious books about the founding of the United States, not fluffy, you know, right. Bill O'Reilly books or whatever, is, is aware that, that they all disagreed with each other rabidly, you know, on almost everything. Um, in the Constitutional Convention, in the ratification debates, all the time. So, you know, uh, you can say that about any particular issue that, that I, I think that the, the search for original intent is, is folly. Yeah. But specifically on the question of closer union, yes, some of them, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, these were, you know, visionary men in, in the way that word was used at the time, which is that they, they had these kind of really far out ideas that nobody else really quite grasped yet, um, by the early 1780s even, that they wanted a much closer union. They wanted to form a nation and that a, a loose federation of 13 states wasn't going to cut it. It wasn't going to survive. They were going to be too weak to to stand up to, you know, say, foreign meddling in American politics. But for many other people, that was, you know, precisely the opposite. Um, I mentioned the anti-federalists, you know, a lot of yes. people who ended up going on to be, you know, prominent American politicians um, were anti-federalists. They were against the Constitution. I, you know, I mentioned an episode in the book where um, to celebrate the 4th of July in 1788, a bunch of anti-federalists in Albany actually marched to the top of a hill and they'd burn the Constitution. That was their way of expressing patriotism um, yeah. for the United States, you know, because they thought that, that the Constitution that we all celebrate and, and worship today as a quasi-religious document was really um, – you know, a counter-revolutionary document, uh, and effectively a coup d'etat, since it was, you know, quite illegal um, and bypassed the existing mechanisms for amending the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation at the time. Um, so they they thought it was it was horrible. So you know, why don't they count? They don't count as as original intent um, uh -huh. of Americans who were who were alive at the time, who not only drafted because some people left the Constitutional Convention to protest it, but also ratified the Constitution. Um, I mean, these are kind of absurd really like metaphysical things you get into when you're when you're governed by a 250 year old document that has been put up for a vote precisely once that vote was close and you know and there was a lot more fraud in those elections um than there was in the 2020 election oh my. so you know that that's i think a major a major argument for for taking another look at it and talk about original intent uh, in the 18th century, there were the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions. Uh, and, you know, at the other end of the spectrum was, as you mentioned, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. But uh, the the sentiment of the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions was pretty original as as well. What what was what were they talking about? What was their what was motivating them? Um, different things for each of them, but but overall, they were skeptics of this this project of a larger national union. Um, they, you know, it's about seven or eight years that separates them, but they had kind of very, they were existing in very different contexts. I mean, the Shays Rebellion is 1786. So before the constitutional convention and in the middle of a massive economic depression where, which, which a lot of historians say was pretty much equal to that of the 1930s in its sheer misery. And they were, they were objecting to really high taxes um, and, and high yes. debts that they had contracted in the middle of this depression, but especially that these high tax dollars, um, that the states were enacting were going largely towards speculators, towards the one percent. Right. That's really, you know, an economic revolt um, of, of a very populist nature, um, and they wanted their state governments to protect them 
from the depredations of the wealthy. They weren't, you know, calling for any kind of large national government. But, you know, George Washington and other people like Alexander Hamilton, who had been wanting to push for a new constitution and a stronger national government, seized on the Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts as kind of an excuse to, to finally put forward this new system. Fast forward a bunch of years, they've adopted the constitution, ratified it through, I think, you know, force and fraud. Um, and Alexander Hamilton is treasury secretary and institutes a program to try to tighten the band between the states. He's, the, the federal government will assume their revolutionary war debts and he passes, you know, famous whiskey tax uh, basically to raise, to raise money. Um, but in, in, in the, Whiskey Rebellion takes place in Western Pennsylvania, where money, you know, there's very little hard coinage to go around. So they basically use whiskey as a form of currency mm-hmm. and taxing it is is a major threat to their lifestyles. And, and really, it's a, it's a sectional issue because it's an anti-Western policy. Um, so they they rise up in revolt and, and they start um, attacking, you know, customs collectors, uh, tax collectors, and anybody, any like larger whiskey distillers who are willing to pay the tax. Uh, And then people start talking about secession from the United States. Um, so, you know, those are those are populist revolts. Some 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 people have compared them to what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. I really I really don't buy that, um, except in the most superficial ways, because the people back then had very genuine economic yes. um, complaints with the power structure, whereas the people on January 6th, I, I think it's a you know, it's a very different story. And my my impression was that that uh, the, the Shays Rebellion anyway was about uh, you know who who does the government serve the creditors or the debtors, and it seemed right. to be some sort of a balance between the two, but uh, mostly went out on the side of the creditors I think, and seems to be the case now, and that's a lot of what uh, Occupy Wall Street and other movements have been about since then. For those who may have just tuned in, we're having a fun discussion about history that. Uh, is very, uh, you know, affecting us now. Uh, Our guest today is Richard Kreitner, who's written a very timely book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Union. Now, Reagan, President Reagan, talked about devolution, but it didn't happen. Devolution, meaning power and decision-making, being shifted back to the regions, the different nations, what in the late 60s was talked about as bioregions. Anybody remember that? Would it not be easier and more feasible to enact progressive reforms with those self-governing smaller entities? Are there political and economic policies which might have a better chance of being instituted in new smaller nations? Your thoughts? I think that's 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 kind of the primary motivating factor in my writing this book is that supposition. I'm not I'm not completely convinced of it yet, but I uh-huh. think there's some reason to think so. You know, um, I, I I wrote a piece for the New York Times in the spring when when you know at the peak of the coronavirus situation, when it was clear that uh, well not the peak at what, at what then seemed the peak right um, in, the, in the first peak right um, you know it, it became clear that the federal government under Trump had effectively abdicated all responsibility for handling this crisis in any way mm. in terms of instituting you know lockdown policies to to kind of prevent people from catching it. Uh, getting personal protective equipment out to various hospitals and places that needed it, all things like that. They, they just were totally absent. And Trump you know, sp- explicitly left it to the governors to make their own purchases and, and to, to get what they needed for their citizens. 
And the governors quickly found that they were competing with one another. The prices were going up. They weren't able to do it. The states themselves are not, you know, self-sufficient um, in a crisis like this. So what happened? They, they kind of naturally started banding together to join forces. You had three groups of 17 governors total uh, in the northeast where we live, um, in the Midwest and then on the West Coast that, that joined together to coordinate economic lockdown policies and the purchase of protective equipment. Um, and I just thought that was really, really interesting as a kind of emergency measure in the absence of federal leadership. And it suggests to me that should there be like further, you know, future vacuums of federal leadership, as there certainly will be, especially if, as we will have, have you know, more Republican presidents at some point, um, and in the age of climate change, where there's going to be, you know, a growing number of, of disasters and, and catastrophes compounding upon one another, it seems to me that that is probably the most likely um, thing that will take take the place of the federal government's leadership is is these kind of regional associations of governors that take most of their power from the states and from the federal government. Um, so I, I do think that the future of American government for, for good and for ill um, may be those kinds of regional formations that you're talking about. I think there are certain things that you might gain from that. You know, certainly I think more progressive policies on, on some things might be able to be enacted then. You're also going to have, you know, more reactionary policies adopted probably in other regions. Yes. Um, and I think that it's important for all of us individually and collectively to really start thinking about that and start thinking about what kind of trade-offs we're willing to accept um, in order to to keep the whole thing together. You know, and that doesn't necessarily mean a total breakup of the union into different nations. I think that might be, what, you know, some kind of regional breakdown um, might be some kind of way to save the union in, in a different, uh -huh. and, you know, a much altered federal framework. Um, but But I'm not sure, but I think that we could use a lot more study on how that kind of breakdown would uh, impact different policies. Yeah, but that is that is uh, interesting. They they can't do it all certainly on their own. It, it's long amazed me that you know every four years we have a big presidential campaign, and it seems kind of impossible. He or she has to appeal to so many distinct regional, cultural, and political identities. When the war against Southern independence was fought, the population was about thirty-two million. Just in my lifetime, our population has much more than doubled to about 330 million. Would it be possible then if a candidate for president could only have to appeal to one of the many sub-nations? I'm not sure what the correct term would be. I mean, could we Northerners, for example, have had a President McGovern or a Ted Kennedy and the South had its own choice and perhaps, you know, get getting together some kind of uh, confederation? Your thoughts on that? I mean, is it still possible to have one person appeal to all these different cultural and political identities? I mean, it, it seems like there is because we keep electing presidents, but we keep having violent reactions to those presidents where, where each, each one is, is a, is the total opposite of the one that came before such that it becomes really difficult to suss out what our national, you know, predilections or preferences are, um, at any particular moment, you know, uh, and then historians are going to write books about how the United States changed from 2008 to 2016. And then mm. the response to Trump, but all we're talking about is, is the change of a few 
200,000 votes, you know, in a couple of states. It's really it's really hard to, to figure out what what the overall you know narrative is. But this question of one person being in charge of the entire country, you know, even before I thought of the idea of disunion, I, I traveled a lot around the U.S. Uh, in college and, and afterwards. Um, and, you know, I just remember taking the train through like the Southwest and just looking north and imagining it stretching all the way up to Canada and being like one person is in charge of governing this whole thing. It makes no sense at all. Um, you know, when you travel around the country, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like one country to me. Um, it feels like several. Um, and does that mean that there's going to be that there are? Um, or ever have been, you know, very clean places to draw the lines in terms yeah. of this is that, and, you know, no, of course not. But, but um, the, the whole world is like that, you know, one, one country kind of blends into another, but you still have to have borders somewhere. Um, but, and the other thing is that mashing all those places and different peoples together, I think it really bleeds the, the content and the purpose out of our national politics. You know, it, it kind of, the, the only way that we could kind of recover our, some, ourselves from the Trump era, it seems, has been to elect Biden, who, who you know, the, the content, the, the force is just simply not there in terms of, you know, what does he, what does he represent? What does he stand for? What, what kind of, what is he going to do for the country? Um, so perhaps, you know, you mentioned McGovern, perhaps in, in smaller regional countries within the United States or something, um, or succeeding the United States, you'd be able to have a more coherent politics in each of those regions. Uh, it's, it's worth thinking about, you know, thinking about what history could have been is, is never a waste of time, in my opinion. And I remember in the late 60s with talk of black nationalism and separatism at, and at the... At the same time, there was, with the sense of an emerging counterculture at Woodstock, yes, I was there, there were people passing out flyers calling for a new nation, Woodstock Nation. Abby Hoffman wow. wrote a book about that. Since then, we've heard talk of Texas seceding, uh, increased quite recently, California becoming three nations. Then there's Cascadia, which is Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. There are independence movements in Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Alaska, more natural entities. I mean, here I am in New England. What do I have to do with uh, Alabama and Mississippi? I can relate much more to places like New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island, I think. Uh, but this is sort of taboo talk, but isn't it actually quite traditional? It is. I mean, I, I argue that, that you know, disunion is really our main American political tradition. Um, I, I want to get back to the, the more recent Texas and stuff, things that you mentioned, but that's funny. I've never really heard that about Woodstock. I did uncover a proposal in one of the counterculture newspapers, the East Village Other from the 60s. Oh, I remember. To form an, an, an underground states of America, um, where it was something like you would secede from the United States and everything would be paid for. And, and the way they were going to... Um, support this country was by charging squares to come visit them and, and kind of, you know, take tours through, through this underground hippie <laughs> nation. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, the idea never goes away. Um, but yeah, you know, this, the, the, the new secessionism, as I call it, has, has really taken off since about 2004. Um, after that election was when, you know, liberals online started passing around satirical maps that showed the United States of Canada and Jesus land as two separate right. countries. And then after that, you know, Kirkpatrick Sale, um, An old you know, friend of mine. great books on SBS. Oh, really? Yep. You know, he's, he's really like the godfather of, of, 
the new secessionist movement, he started getting conferences together yes. of different movements in Vermont and uh, the South and Hawaii and California and Texas uh-huh. um, to start talking to one another in, in about 2005, 2006. And then after 2008, the Texas movement really took off, you know, in response to Obama's election. And Rick Perry made made some, you know, notorious yeah. comments saying that, um, and it's, I think at a very early Tea Party rally, saying that, you know, we love this union, we'd hate to leave it, but if, you know, the government keeps thumbing its nose, that the American people will have no choice. Um, that really, like, kicked off um, a big surge in support for, for Texas separatism. And then, of course, after 2016, Californians started talking about it. And at every step, we've been told that it's it's not serious, it's fringe, it's never going to happen. But you know, look at what happened at the Capitol last week. I, I think it's 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 it should be a wake up call to stop dismissing things as fringe um, that that actually have really deep roots in American history. And there's really no reason to think that they that they can't happen again. I personally, and I'm working on a piece right now about this. I personally think that secession is going to be the next you know major thing that that the Trumpies turn to in the in the 2020s um mm. when it's clear that their guy's not coming back to power i think that um this make america great again thing is going to turn into you know leave america um and it's, it's going to be something that, that everybody's going to have to wrestle with you know that we, we might face the same conundrum that americans faced in 1860 1861 which is either fight a civil war to keep the country together or, or break it up. And, you know, it, it was an honorable choice, I think, in 1861 to, to fight the war to keep the Union together. Lincoln thought that there was a purpose for that, not simply an end in itself, but that the United States needed to survive to continue to serve as a model of democracy um, and equality to, to all the world. And, you know, I, I, base, I, I argue in the book that he basically saw that fight the civil war um, as kind of a bet on the nation's future that eventually the country would become the kind of country that vindicated that choice um, you know, effectively to abolish slavery and, and ensure equality and overcome this, this founding, you know, sin or, or um, dilemma that the country had found itself in. Um, I'm not sure that there's such that there's an, a similar situation today where that the, the United States needs to somehow stay together to ensure some kind of that it, that it remains some kind of lesson to the world. Um, I think we're kind of past that. <laughs> the rest of the world, I think, while they're worried about practical, you know, concerns about the United States falling apart, I don't really feel like the United States needs to survive in order to teach the rest of the world things about democracy. I think we have a lot more to learn about democracy at this point from the rest of the world. Um, the, the the one kind of exception I would make to that is climate change. Just because of the size of our economy, um, if the United States can lead the world to fight climate change and prevent an utter catastrophe for the human species and all other species, then it's worth staying together and doing that. If it seems like we can't do that, then I'm, I'm not so sure. That's to me the equivalent of, of Lincoln's bet. Um, you know, I don't want to go to, I don't want to, you know, march on Virginia or something. You know, I mean, that would be what it is now. But I don't want to fight a civil war in order to keep the country yeah. together. I'd rather break apart. So much to talk about here, and it's, <clears throat> excuse me, so timely. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest is uh, author Richard Kreitner, who's got a book, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. Uh, and in the war of the 1860s, the cultural and political divide was certain and clear. The northern states were on one side of distinct agreed-upon borders, 
the South on the other. Now, there are liberals in Georgia, and Austin, Texas is called the blueberry floating in tomato soup. A breakup would have been a heck of a lot easier back then, would it not? I mean, what about those difficulties now that it's all been put in a blender and uh, mixed together? Yeah, I actually slightly disagree with you on that. I mean, sure, about about the 1860s, sure, there was the Mason-Dixon line separating North and South where there was and was not slavery. But that wasn't really the line along which people's affinities mapped. You know, New York City, where I live, was was a major... Um, you know, supporter of the South and, and wanted nothing to do with the Civil War, so much so that there was an insurrection yes. in Manhattan in 1863, the famous draft riots, you yes. know, the worst really um, instance of urban unrest in American history. Um, and then in, uh, in other places in the Midwest, especially along the Ohio River, where people had, you know, really close connections um, to, to Southern states, um, there was no desire at all to fight the Civil War. And there were insurrections there as well, and even conspiracies to separate the Midwest um, into a, a separate republic uh, called the Northwestern Republic or mm. Confederacy, which would be allied with the South so as to maintain trade down the Mississippi River. Um, mm. So that, that's kind of what I do with, with my chapter on the Civil War in the book is show that the division that the division was not cleanly between North and South, that there are many people, you know, um, you know, non-slaveholding whites in the Appalachian Mountains in the South who wanted nothing to do with the Confederacy and even tried to get their counties um, to secede from the Confederacy, form new states and rejoin the Union. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't so clean back then either. Nice. And a lot, I, I think that there's a good case to be made that those internal divisions in the South, at least, cost them the war, ultimately, yeah. because the Confederacy they had to fight three wars. They had to fight the North. They had to fight their own, um, you know, draft dodging, non-slave holding whites. And of course they had to fight their own slaves um, who were rising up in rebellion in any case. Um, so I think, you know, today I think it's even less clean. I, I will grant that point. Um, you know, it's not red state, blue state. I think those maps are really misleading um, yes. and misguided, you know, misguided. It's re- it's really county, uh, you know, country versus city um, for yes, the most part, with the, suburb- with the suburbs being the, the battleground. Um, and I don't have a very, you know, clear answer as to what that would mean for a modern breakup. I do think, you know, um, that in a kind of breakup or breakdown scenario that I talked about where you've got eight or 10 or 12 regions, you know, taking most of their powers from the states and the federal government. The point of that to me is not really ideological purity in each of these new regions or republics, um, because that to me is where you really start to get messy. You know, that's where you start to get forms of cleansing um, and relocation that I think would be really, you know, unappetizing. Um, I think it's really more what we were talking about earlier, which is that it might just simply be a way to make democracy more effective. You know, you talked at the, in, the, in your introduction that the country might just be too big to be governed as a democracy right now. And perhaps by making it smaller into smaller parts, all or some of those new regions would be able to, you know, we'd be able to argue over things more productively and efficiently um, than by you know, arguing over everything in one city in Washington. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's my, my hypothesis. Um, but I don't think the point is to separate all people, uh, you know, who don't share the same beliefs or something. I mean, I have cousins here in, in Brooklyn who I disagree with, you know, completely. Uh-huh. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't want to leave and I don't want them to leave either. Yeah. Um, I just want to, you know, 
draw our, you know, redraw our governmental institutions, I guess, to, to get past this, this total paralysis. Yeah, the idea of having to pick up and leave to be with people of your uh, nation is pretty scary and quite, uh, yeah. quite unrealistic. And I noticed uh, during the uh, uh, recent election in Georgia, <laughs> there were the uh, red counties and the blue. The, it was. It seems to break up between uh, high density populations and low density populations. And what we do about that, right. I, I, to me, I think we we Democrats. I'm a Democrat. Have to listen to the people in the low density area to have any kind of hope. And you cited a sign that you saw held by scholar Chenjerai Kumanika at a protest saying, we are trying to make this country something it has never been. And I've been around since the 50s, and I don't see the country any more united today. I sense no trajectory for that happening. Is it folly to think it's possible to make a more perfect union, really, with this ever-accelerating divisions that are going on? I don't think it's impossible. Um, I think it's it's a noble um, sentiment, but it, you have to recognize the difficulties. Um, well, first of all, the the sign. It's a quote from him, but he wasn't hold, he wasn't himself holding the sign. Oh, um, okay. He has a, he he did a great podcast a few years ago with the writer Jack Hitt called Uncivil about the the legacy of the Civil War, which I'd recommend everybody to check out. It's really phenomenal. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that it's it's folly to to adopt that as your slogan without recognizing that other people, you know, don't want that. <laughs> I mean, you know, are going to fight you on that. And you, you can't really be surprised when they do that because they, they like the country as it's always been. It's been devoted to, to their interests all along. Um, and as, as you're saying, I think, I think wisely, it takes some sensitivity and willingness to listen yeah. to, to, you know, to go through that kind of difficult transition. Um, but no, I, you know, I, I look back through American history. I think that's the noblest purpose that there is to, to make the country something that it's never been. Mm. Um, because, you know, the origins of American history of, of the United States, contrary to the 1776 commission, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot that's, that's not very nice there. Um, so it's, it's, it's a noble goal, but, but I think that you have to recognize that the other side sees it the same way that we're trying to make the country something it's never been. And they're going to fight that. And I remember growing up again in the 50s, yes, I am that old, and believing that what I was told that, uh, you know, people struggling for freedom to throw off the chains of, of colonialism, that we'd always be on their side. And then came Vietnam, and it's like, whoa, we are not living up to our ideals. And we never have, but we're still pushing for them. I suppose that's that, that way with every person who wants to be the best he or she can be. I always think it's interesting that the term the United States of America, it's an awkward name, as you say. It's more of a claim than a name. And I believe before the Civil War, one said the United States are, and then after the war, it became the United States is. What, what of that name? What I found in my research um, is that that's actually not quite the case. That that's, that or that that is the case, but it was due to a larger grammatical shift in uh, the culture. Um, so that before the Civil War, people would say the Supreme Court are, 
and then afterwards it was the Supreme Court is, which sounds, you know, to the Supreme Court are sounds absurd to our ears, but that's just simply the way it was used. Um, and the whole idea that that changed with the Civil War is, I think, part of this whole mythology that the Civil War succeeded, you know, in uniting the country um, in a way that, that my, my entire contention is that it really did not. It just pushed our divisions um, below the surface. But what what, this, what, the, that, what that mythology, what that story about the name does suggest is this awkward um, kind of problematic singular slash plural nature of the country. Um, you know, it's a weird name for a country. It's not Australia. It's not Japan. It's, it's the United States of America. It's a claim, as you know. Um, and what's really interesting to me is that it's a claim that the founders themselves in 1776 knew to be untrue. They knew that the United States was not united. Um, and the guy who gave them the, the name, John Dickinson, um, he, you know, was one of the more famous early revolutionaries. He wrote, um, the first, you know, appeal to the King in 1765 to, to withdraw the stamp tax. Um, and in 1767, he wrote the, a song of American freedom, which, which has these lines united we, by uniting, we stand dividing, we fall. Um, you know, which of course we still use, but come 1776, he had grown very skeptical of the revolution precisely because he saw that the colonies were not united at all, that they're very divided. And he gives this great speech in the Continental Congress just a couple of days before the Declaration of Independence is signed, in which he warns them that if you break away from England before we figured out all these differences among ourselves about Western lands, about taxes, about representation in Congress. Um, we're going to fall apart into into a new you know a civil war and probably break into separate countries, and so he's the only delegate at the Continental Congress who refuses to sign the Declaration of Independence. But meanwhile, he's the author of the first draft of the Articles of Confederation, the first um, line of which is, the name of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. <laughs> you know, So he's the one who gives it the name, even though he specifically was saying at the, at the exact same time, we are not united and we are going to fall. Um, so it's a claim about the future. He's hoping that it becomes yeah. true, not that it is true currently. Um, and ever since it's been invoked, we, you know, Joe Biden, we are the United States of America. There's nothing that we cannot do, but it's never actually, you know, become true. Um, and in the book, I quote, um, a scholar of place names in American literature, the, the wonderful 1945 book, uh, names on the land by George C. Stewart. Mm. Um, and, and he's, he talks about the origins of all different place names in the United States, rivers and towns and States. Um, but he also talks about the name of the country itself. And he says something to the effect of in the name itself, the possibility of its opposite was present, that that which was united can always become divided. And the seeds of secession were there from the beginning in that name. Um, and that's to me just an absolutely brilliant insight. Um, that and you know it's a, Jay, it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning about um, one nation indivisible in the pledge of allegiance. You know, there's at some point it it it, it seems like well if you've got to say it if you've got to keep insisting on it yeah. you know my my skepticism my, my my skepticism radar starts going off. Oh well maybe this is really not as true as you want it to be, <laughs> and that's why you're you know and that once you start thinking about the United States and its its symbols of nationality in that way you you really start to see it every where there's a certain kind of overcompensating that's going on. Um, 
Yeah. You know, uh, and you know, for that reason, actually, there have been several movements through the years to rename the country, uh, especially at the beginning. A lot of people are like, well, this is a ridiculous name. You know, um, nobody's going to believe us if our name is plural, <laughs> if, it, if it if it's not even a real name. Um, so there were ideas of Fredonia, um, which, you know, is actually not even a Latin word, but they, they thought sounded like it could be the Latin word for freedom. Um, other people wanted to name it Columbia. You know, these are real yes. actual names, um, but it didn't go anywhere, of course. And and that great philosopher Groucho Marx uh, had that movie where uh, he was fighting a war for Fredonia. Fredonia, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, he, he was a great philosopher. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, divisions and... Uh, if we really are one country. Our guest today is Richard Kreitner. His book is Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. And as you were talking, I was thinking about one of, one of our truly great presidents, Franklin Roosevelt. He, the country was in terrible shape. People were losing faith in the country. And one of the, 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 the things that he did was to, to send out writers, unemployed writers, uh, to go out throughout the country and write uh, about each town, each all these different regions, and the identity within those regions. And they also had the uh, uh, post office murals uh, celebrating the towns. And I, I just think, you know, th- that that talks to the the possibilities, the 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 hope for something great unifying us with all our different sub-identities. And uh, I, I hope that uh, President Biden can be a lot like uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, but that time will tell. And Absolutely. There was a great piece, I'm sorry to interrupt, there was a great piece in the New York Times um, last weekend in the in the art section uh, by the critic Jason Farrago. I'm not sure if, that's, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, arguing for Biden to, to, to um, institute precisely that kind of Works Progress Administration program for putting novelists and playwrights and artists um, to work in precisely that way. And I completely agree with you that um, that is the kind of work that needs to happen in order to, to save the union, um, if that is something that we want to do. Um, but, you know, there's a certain uh, lack of knowledge of, of our own country, I think, that exists. And that's why I was so interested um, when I was a little bit younger in, in traveling around the country, because, you know, most of us don't really do that anymore. We go to, you know, Thailand before we go to Tennessee, <laughs> Uh, you know, to take one 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 example, um, we you know we don't really travel around our country or or find ourselves talking to to Americans from different walks of life, and I I really hope that you know he's a big Amtrak fan. I really hope that ah, that kind of yes. encouraging of of national mobility and self discovery and art, as you note, um, will be a major part of his you know recovery plan. I sure hope so. And uh, hope is a dangerous word. Hope kills. But uh, what are we going to do? In the recent election, Republicans and Democrats did not consider the other side, the loyal opposition, to be respected. As it was when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, they were the loyal opposition. And we, you know, we disagreed, but we, we respected each other. As you say, Democrats, quote, want to grind conservatives into the dust, humiliate them, force them to jump through public hoops and confess their sins before the world, end of quote. And recently I saw lawn signs in the 2020 election that said, elect Trump 2020, make the liberals cry again. Compromise was unthinkable. It's not respectable, respectful disagreement. I, I don't see how this can get better and become more civil. Are we, 
it's, I wonder if we're really at war now. I mean, certainly the invaders of uh, January 6th pff, were all for a war. They're trying to uh, throw a coup and overthrow the government. And I remember, with some degree of hope, Pat Buchanan's culture war speech at the Republican National Convention in 1992. I remember at the time, I thought, I was so confident our side had won the cultural war. Can a cultural war even be one? Oof, I don't know. You know <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm racking my brain in, for, for periods of American history where that happened. I think there have been some, you know, like around the turn of the 19th century when you had Jefferson's Democratic Republicans going against, you know, John Adams's and Alexander Hamilton's Federalists who were more concentrated in the North. That was a real cultural site as well as a political one. And it was one of the, the, the Democrats, the Republicans, the Jeffersonians, you know, handedly won. Um, and the kind of you know, 18th century politics of honor and, um, you know, deference to elites that, that kind of did fall by the wayside. Um, and, and, you know, the Federalists lost and their political party disappeared. So I do think it's possible. I think it was very messy though. You had secessionist movements in there. You had, you know, kind of home, homegrown insurrections in there during the war of 1812. Um, so I, I do think it's possible, but it usually doesn't look pretty. Um, you know, you mentioned Pat Buchanan's speech. And I talk about that in the book. I think that we're basically reaping what Republicans have sowed. Republicans, I mean, mm. Republican strategists, politicians, elite, have sowed for, for 40 or 50 years now. You know, I quote another um, Patrick Buchanan line during the Nixon administration when he was serving as an advisor to Nixon. And he says that if we tear the country in half, we can pick up the bigger half. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just laying it all out there. I mean, that was, that's been the Republican strategy for 50 years, you know. Um, which is not to say that there haven't been democratic um, errors and mistakes as well. I mean, you know, certain lines of Obama that he's that he regrets at great length in his memoir, you know, about, you know, people clinging to their guns and religion. Yes, yeah. You know, Hillary's kind of misinterpreted Ugh. comment about deplorables. You know, that's that's um, the kind of thing that feeds this this sense of mutual enmity. And I think I think Republicans are far far more responsible for that than Democrats. Yeah. But healing those kinds of wounds, um, I think, can be a primary purpose, or should be, you know, for, for all of us, and especially political leaders. I simply, you know, uh, probably no surprise, I was for Bernie Sanders in the primary uh, in 2016 and 2020. Yeah. And I simply think that his approach to healing those divisions, which is recognizing people's, you know, needs um, and wants uh, yes. and, and, and and kind of empathizing with them in a very, very deep and, and genuine way mm -hmm. is, I think, probably a more productive path forward than what I find to be Biden's somewhat more empty, milquetoast, you know, version of that rhetoric, um, which I don't think really, you know, people on the other side are really going to quite buy um, <laughs> without, without like material kind of policies. Um, to, to, to show that you really mean it. Well, that's one of the problems of having one person try to be president for everybody. I, I, to me, I mean, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter as well. In fact, in my, in my files, uh, in my archives, I was just going through and I found uh, an old Liberty Union bumper sticker from 1971 when that was his, uh, hmm. his party back in, uh, in Vermont. I, you know, to me, the, the populist tradition has always been there in America. It was there at Shays Rebellion. It's been there... Uh, and it's 
the uh, Trumpists have used populism. We're listening to you. We're, those guys, those elite, are not listening to you. And it seems like there's a, a kind of a flip between Republicans and Democrats. We used to be the party of working people, and now it's flipped around, at least in many people's perception, that the Democrats are the elitists and the Republicans are for the little guy, the people who live in the uh, uh, less densely populated areas. It's it's hard to uh, to change that for sure, and you write that uh, to undermine the white supremacist consensus has always been threatening to the myth of national unity, and so it is today. In the context, let me ask: Should we have been surprised at the January sixth insurrection that there were Confederate flags and shirts that said "Civil War" on them? I mean, they've been talking this way for a long time, and, and they, the Republicans who are, you know, want to be elected, they put their finger to the wind and see which way the wind is blowing, and that seems like that's the way the wind has been blowing, the enthusiasm within people who could potentially vote Republican. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I mean not to, to plug myself, but if you read my book or if you read my newsletter, you certainly were not surprised by the presence of Confederate flags um, at the Capitol. I mean, that, that is that, that, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm saying has never gone away. You know, and that goes back to the question of dismissing secession talk as fringe or as fantasy. You know, if you've got the flag of a failed rebellion still so prominent in national life 150 years later, you're going to tell me that we're a solid union that can never be broken apart. I'm, I'm not going to believe you. You know, um, is, is basically my take on that. No, I wasn't remotely surprised by that. You know, the story of conservatism in the, in the latter half of the 20th century is what I call the southernization of, of national politics. Uh-huh. You know, and, and my, you know, my friend Rick Perlstein has, oh, yes. has a great quote in his book. Um, I'm not sure if it's Wallace himself or somebody saying that that their goal was to push the Mason-Dixon line up to Canada. Yeah, and that's that's essentially what has happened. You see, you see the Confederate flag. You know, in all kinds of oh, states yeah. that never seceded from the Union, um, True. and that that is just further evidence, the most obvious evidence, really, that um, this 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 skepticism about the Union has never really gone away. And as uh, abolitionist Wendell Phillips said, uh, they may not leave the Union, but they will rule from within. Uh, you know right. the, the Southern culture and mentality. I I really I don't like it, but it's it certainly is a challenge for us going forward. Conventional but was that's where, you go know, ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, just that's where that's where the idea of Northern disunionism comes back in. I think because that you know, and Wendell Phillips before the Civil War, before that comments was was a disunionist with with uh-huh. William Lloyd Garrison, who was arguing for free state secession from the Union to deprive the South of the support. Um, that the Constitution and the federal government gave to slavery, and, the market. and that's you know, and I argue that they that those are really the heroes of American history and of the Civil War era because they were willing to call the South on its bluff, you know, and, and willing mm. to say, you know, we're tired of your threats, we're going to walk. You need us more than we need you. Yeah. And you know, as I'm as as I'm suggesting here, uh, I think that's a little bit of the vim and vigor that and vinegar that we need to bring back into progressive politics, you know. Um, the, in the spring, Mitch McConnell derided the notion of blue state bailouts, you know, when 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 senators were seeking, you know, congressional mm-hmm. support for states and cities that had their tax budgets, their, their their tax revenues totally, you know, cratered by the by the pandemic. And everybody, you know, was pointing out that, you know, it's it's the so-called blue states that pay far more into federal coffers than they get back and the yes. red states that take far more than they give. In. <laughs> so exactly who is bailing out whom here, you know? 
I'm not saying that I want, I necessarily want blue states to secede. I still think there's really kind of one last chance um, to to uh, make it truly a more perfect union and, and a, a, a real multiracial democracy. But I also think a little bit of threat going the other way might not be the worst thing. Um, <laughs> you know, because because that's the only way that you're going to 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 um, to to threaten this order that Wendell Phillips was talking about, which is that the South rules from within. Yes. You know, and, and if, if only only when the other side says, well, we're really not going to continue to participate with that. Um, you know, for instance, I saw um, just yesterday, the day before, the chair of the Wyoming Republican Party is threatening that his state, too, might secede and that he's been in touch with, with Texas. Wyoming has two senators for 800,000 people. It's literally the most overrepresented state in the entire union. (laughs) They're going to secede from the union, please. Well, I I think Vermont may have about the same number of people, but the the, uh, distance between towns there, we won't get into that. But conventional wisdom is that, oh, it's just ridiculous to talk about dissolution into new chosen arrangements. Perhaps now is not the time. Do you think it's just nuts looking to the relatively near-term future? I don't. I don't. Um, depends on what you mean by near term. I don't think well, that um, fifteen Texas years is going. Fifteen years. I don't think it's nuts at all. Um, at all. I think if current current trends continue, I would be pretty surprised if there's not one state or another holding a vote um, to secede from the union by then. Really. Hmm. Um, I just think that that our national political dysfunction, largely because of of constitutional obstacles to majority will, are just growing too intense, and there's too much that needs doing, um, especially in terms of climate change, and you know, especially the right just seems to be spinning completely out of the orbit of the reasonable. <laughs> so, so I, I really just I, I I do think that this is going to be the next big issue in American politics in, in the next decade. And it doesn't have to be a war when people, you know, people react rather quickly, you know, separation, uh, you know, new chosen arrangements. What, do you want another civil war? Well, I don't think there has to be a war, you know. It, it's, it, it doesn't have to be that way at all. It could be... Uh, I agree. And, I, you know, and if after each election, the side that loses entertains this thought, at yeah. least, you know, which is true. The left was talking about this after 2016, and now that the right is doing it, a lot of my friends and family on the left are, are deriding them and being like, oh, wait, you know, you, you, you say you are patriots, but now you're traitors, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But if we're all kind of thinking about this, this thought, um, if not at the exact same time, then perhaps, as you say, there doesn't need to be a war. And perhaps, you know, this is what I'm hoping that the book does is, is that it, it convinces people that, you know, as in earlier periods of American history, it seems like the only thing we have in common is the desire to have nothing to do with one another. <laughs> and if that's the case, you know, and if that's the case, we should think about this beforehand, before the crisis really hits, oh um, and and decide whether we whether this is worth you know going to war or or there being violence over. Perhaps peaceful dissolution rather than. The worst-case scenario for the country is the best-case scenario. Fascinating. Well, the book is called Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. And you say you have a newsletter, too. What can people go to on that Internet thingy to uh, read more of your stuff? Yeah, just search uh, the, the phrase, only united in name, which is uh, a chapter mm. from the book mm-hmm. um, and a quote from from. I think the governor of North Carolina in the 1780s, but I think explains a lot about American history. Um, so only united in name. 
Thank you so much, uh, Richard uh, Kreitner. It's been uh, very enlightening, and I'm hoping this uh, sparks a lot of discussion. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Great. Thank you, Bert. Really appreciate it. Like my father before me. Yeah.